This is the Industrial IoT Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. We have seen the emergence of what I call modern Internet of Things. It's really the connectivity piece and the data aggregation piece that is usually missing in the infrastructure right now in the market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Industrial IoT Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. In the midst of Industry 4.0, everything from heavy machinery manufacturing to workplace thermostat control have learned the importance and power of accurate sensor data. It informs real-time decision-making. But much of B2B hasn't fully understood what kind of data a multitude of sensors can bring to them. Mostly because the idea of hundreds of sensors in one room or for one application sounds a little ludicrous to people. Too expensive, too network taxing, and too difficult to manage. Our guests today believe that what they're doing is proving that whole mindset wrong. And I'd like to give them the platform to explore that. And we're going to talk in-depth about IoT HD, which is basically high-density IoT network. I'd like to introduce Atul Patel, CEO and co-founder of Adiza, as well as John Lamb, Vice President of Sales for Premio Incorporated. Atul, John, both of you, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Great. Thank you so much, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of our previous conversations have been on Premio's uh, partnership with other companies and how your network support has really assisted them in their IoT mission. And today's conversation is going to be very similar. So today we're really profiling a tool, Adiza, and this idea of high-density IoT. Uh, so I'm super excited to get everyone's perspective on this. A tool, I'm really amped to have your thoughts on this subject, mostly because of your passion for the subject. Um, you know, doing a little research, uh, I found you're a home automation life hacker, which means you've been fiddling with home automation in its really early days, and I've been a fan of the potential of that technology for a long time. When did you really start getting into that, and what kind of sensors and gear uh, were you first messing around with? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for the lead up. Um, so I started, I was always a technical person, you know, just personally, always the latest devices. I get rid of things on eBay, buy the latest devices, and I just keep cycling through what's the latest uh, uh, gadgets and, and gizmos. And I had started to, uh, I moved into my new home around 2011 and really started to explore automation. Um, and I started, this was when you started seeing Kickstarters and different uh, industry opportunities. What you see in Best Buy today with an entire section around home automation didn't even exist. So I had started to purchase uh, different things online, smart things, which at that time was an independent company before its acquisition by by uh, Samsung. Uh, sprinkler automation was just getting kickstarted uh, and a lot of bugs, a lot of conversations with CEOs and, and uh, support desks, uh, even the ring doorbell. I had to make some changes to the actual device itself with the help of rings customer support because I couldn't, I couldn't get it to work properly because it wasn't getting enough energy, I guess, uh, enough uh, voltage to actually finish the camera loading after the doorbell was rang. So ultimately I, 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 I was exposed to a lot of different um, standards. So we talk about standards in this industry, but yet by the time it hits the consumer, 
uh, the consumer is dealing with four or five different protocols, uh, whether it's because of how quickly these companies need to make a device, they go to different countries, different support systems, and so they get recommended different wireless networks, right? Hey, you should use Z-Wave, you should use Zigbee, you should use Wi-Fi. And so you end up having a multitude of different uh, ways of connectivity and these these platforms don't even communicate much. And luckily, when Amazon acquired, you know, Ring Doorbell, when Samsung acquired SmartThings, when Google acquired Nest, you start to see some compatibility. But now you even see it further closing down. But I love this stuff. I love connecting every part of my home. And I learned firsthand how much it takes to do it for a consumer, I couldn't have even imagined what it would take for an industry 4.0 application to be able to get up and running. You certainly don't want to be pairing sensors like you do your headphones, uh, you know, so that was my exposure and I loved the experience doing it firsthand. Well, and you were also getting started back in the day when basically every single solution was a black box solution and you had no software agnostic or tech agnostic solutions out there. So trying to get one thing to interact with another was was difficult, to say the least. <laughs> Absolutely. I used a, a platform called Ift, if this, then that. And you could actually, at that point, everyone was trying to be open because it was a way to keep customers happy uh, while not having all of the operability. So you could just say, hey, I'm going to connect into IFT and you want, if you want the ring doorbell to turn on the Nest Cam, everyone was willing to participate, opening up their APIs to that platform. But uh, recently, Nest actually turned off some of that access, uh, maybe for privacy and so forth. So I, I commend certain aspects of it, but that interoperability doesn't exist as much. And back then, yeah, you did what you could to make it happen. You know, in, in SmartThings case, which is a Z-Wave network, um, you could buy different sensors from different companies and join it uh, or pair it to the Samsung SmartThings network through Z-Wave, but there was never a guarantee that it would work. And you'd I'd, I'd end up on the message boards of SmartThings quite a bit to integrate new sensors that I might want to to try, whether it's a, a sensor for uh, tracking if a certain device was in the in the house or not. So we had a little key fob inside of um, my kids' backpacks, or we were trying to connect a different camera uh, altogether into the SmartThing system. So interoperability was really difficult at the time. So you really had to try to uh, mess around with the the, uh, the nuts and bolts of all of these platforms to make that perfect smart home. So John, you've also seen this evolution of IoT networks, uh, sensor capabilities, not only in consumer products, but in commercial solutions as well. You both have really a tool and John. Um, so I'd like you both to comment on this one if you could, but what does the current state of IoT evolution look like today? And do you think even after all these years of change and tinkering and, and finding that middle ground between all-in-one solutions, but also software agnostic solutions, do you think IoT evolution is reaching far enough? Yeah, so in terms of where we see IoT today in the industry, uh, we, obviously there's a lot of discovering 
happening right now. You saw the, uh, you know, even the companies like TE, uh, Tyco Electronics or ST, uh, they've had sensors for decades, right? Long time. But now they're starting to really understand where does the internet of those sensors actually play uh, in the broader uh, industry 4.0. So we know it's just beginning. And then when you actually think about connectivity, which is important for us, you start to see uh, a, diver a divergence of different models. So you have some that are segmented by the type of the purpose of the connectivity. So you have LTE, 5G, which is really long range satellite coverage. Then you have long range LoRa, NB-IoT. And then you come closer, you have Z-Wave, Zigbee, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. And so you have this sort of breakout of different types of connectivity. And while there's a lot of openness to build a standard together, uh, the use cases themselves force different companies to pick a certain kind of path, right? So if you're a smart, a smart metering company for parking, you're going to naturally gravitate towards LoRa or long range. Uh, if you're uh, in other cases, like with ours, our clients are those types that need micro analysis, really being able to understand uh, every five square feet of a greenhouse or of an airport or certain seats, the seats in a stadium where you have so many things you want to track. And so it takes lots of individual sensors. So what you see happening is you have a breadth of different options of how to connect. And then you have different use cases that align with those. And we think it's still early. Um, we think that um, the integration uh, will actually happen more and increasingly at the cloud and within the edge gateway. That's where Premio is a very important part of our, of our solution because we actually say we're going to communicate with other systems, not at our sensors. I don't need my sensor to talk to your system. I just need our systems to speak together. And if it needs to happen at the edge, it could happen within these powerful Premio devices that have Intel processors, uh, you know, large amounts of storage capability and memory capacity to perform calculations and be able to transfer data between networks and solutions. So again, we see this sort of different paths that people are taking, but we also see the opportunity that this is all converging uh, at the application layer. Great. Thank you so much, Atu, for the um, uh, comments um, into our system. Definitely, we are very excited to partner with Adisa on this uh, project. And we are definitely seeing the the the, the smart IoT definitely in its uh, brownfield instead of not a greenfield right now. We definitely see this is uh, still a very early stage. As uh, to mention, this is so much a uh, different uh, standard out there and so much diversity um, in terms of the different kind of sensors. I mean, the goal here is to how can we, you know, driving forward with the with the big data collections uh, through among all this massive data uh, um, from the sensors. And um, being, you know, from the premium perspective, we, you know, with our Azure device, um, um, a gateway as well as the server, we definitely are driving forward the engine, provide the engine to collecting all this um, um, uh, collection from the big data, which definitely we're seeing um, it's, it will be dramatically increasingly um, among the, the 
um, from the field. Um, the, the the collection for that would definitely drive forward the, uh, the making more smarter decision. And um, um, the the ultimate goal is to to drive predictability um, on the on the profit driven um, um, uh, business model. Well, I mean, with data obviously being the core of Industry 4.0, it makes sense that the more specific data you can get, and just the the literal more amount of data that you can get on the subject. Uh, is going to improve efficiency, it's going to improve quality. Um, so really the issue is not should we have more data, it's how do we handle all that data. And so that brings us to our next point here, which is obviously as the data we need to capture becomes more specific and plentiful, the future of IoT lies in HD, which is not high definition, it's high density. Uh, so we're talking IoT, HD, IoT, high density, high density IoT. What makes this important to Industry 4.0, in y'all's opinion? Why is the need to capture so much data and manage it efficiently so crucial for Industry 4.0 to succeed and to really go beyond, right? To eventually reach 5.0 and, and its, its next evolution. And the answer might seem... Yeah, it might seem sort of self-explanatory, but I think it's always good to put it into words, into context. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if I were to answer that, I'd sort of look into other industries where a lot of progress has been made with data. So my background uh, actually comes from advertising, digital advertising. And if I told you that for analytics, uh, for web experiences, how you navigate the web, how you use different apps, if I could just, if I said, I'm only going to collect a little bit of data when you arrive to my website, but how you move within my website, I don't have ways to track that. So I'll just use this single touch point and I'll decide, are you going to buy my product or not? Are you a uh, avid shopper or are you a window shopper? Imagine advertising being limited like that. Now, if when you apply that to industry 4.0, you start to really wonder, how could important decisions really be made with fewer sensors? If you had a factory and this factory was driven by temperature, meaning temperature was a critical aspect of the health of the factory, the health of the safety of the people within the factory. So like a steel plant or other forms of, of, of temperature driven environments. If you only had one thermostat or five, um, I would sort of challenge you to think about having hundreds or thousands. If building the network, operating the network, uh, the cost of the network was actually minimal, wouldn't you actually want what they call a digital twin to fully represent the factory and not just in a couple of critical touch points. And so we, what we find exciting about what we're doing is when you open up people's uh, sort of opportunity to collect data, it starts to become almost a necessity for them. They start to realize that I was making decisions off of a few touch points and I didn't actually realize what the real problem was until I had more sensors at these other areas to determine that was actually the source of the problem. Meaning sensor one was already showing signs or signals that a problem was ensuing. And then finally sensor five was able to depict that. But imagine if they didn't have sensor one through four, they would have to wait 
for that uh, that um, level of analytics to even understand what decision to make. So, uh, yeah. So high density is what we think a necessity for Industry 4.0 to properly make decisions based on a more comprehensive view of what's happening within their industrial sort of environments rather than a couple of critical touch points. Yeah, and I think the real-time aspect of what you just brought up is probably one of the most important aspects of the entire argument for HDIoT in Industry 4.0 because when you're dealing with manufacturing or uh, really any kind of data acquisition at this level, you're dealing with a high level of risk for, you know, if you're not delivering on efficient product creation um, or analysis or whatever, there could be huge costs incurred. Um, So efficiency is the name of the game and obviously making real-time actionable decisions on we need to fix this or we need to... Um, you know, we need to change the way we're acquiring X amount of data because we're obviously not getting um, the breadth of results that we're expecting. Those kind of decisions need to be made as soon as you discover them. And when you discover them needs to be as soon as they're happening, not at the end of the week kind of a thing. That Daniel, that's really well said. You know, uh, what we're what we're saying with this this amount of data is actually not for the humans to have to sift through this data to look at graphs and charts, but the other machines, the machine learning algorithms, the AI, if you will, the automated control systems, they need this data faster, sooner, and in real time, while the individuals, the operators, can actually look at that information historically and say, hey, next time this pattern happens, I think it's a sign of this because when I, as a sort of a objective, uh, you know, a person that analyzes the data and understands what's happening from a human standpoint, from a process standpoint and so on, I could determine what data looks a certain way. And then I could teach the machine to use that in real time and never even be bothered again about that. It would be fully autonomous at that point. So yeah, it, it, what you said, Daniel, is the, the amount of data and, and the real time nature of it is very important for these other machines to take action on that information. Well, definitely we do believe the um, the uh, two diesels uh, technology is definitely somewhat uh, disruptive uh, innovative to us uh, we believe uh, it's massive data out there and multi-dimensional um, and those data are definitely very helpful and for for the um, more cost-effective and uh, intelligent decision in the real time um, this is re- really a, a breakthrough uh, than a um, than the um, before this industrial floor happened so my next point I was going to bring up is kind of the AI-IoT merge um, and why AI is so crucial for uh, managing all of this data acquisition, which you kind of just touched on, but I'd like to dig in a little deeper if that's cool. Yeah, so let me let me sort of explain how AI you know, would, would actually leverage this data and how we're do, doing that now. First and foremost, AI needs to be trained, right? So when we talk about uh, uh, AGI, artificial general intelligence, you have to train it a particular task. So you say, when this happens, do this, and you're teaching it based on patterns. And the way we actually are, are performing this, this task is we enable our clients
science to annotate our data. So let's say you see a spike in CO2 and we don't know what it means. Uh, the machines don't know what it means. So what we ask people to do is annotate. They say, oh, well, I turned on the injector, the CO2 injector. And so after a while, when we allow individual operators to contribute this training data, after, uh, after, we're, after the system learns this, it no longer needs to be told that, hey, you turned on this machine. It now understands this autonomously without any human intervention. So when you think about artificial intelligence, you first have to understand what does it take to teach the system, right? Machine learning, machine teaching. And when you build, when you give a lot of data and you show it to individuals, operators, individual operators and say, hey, you know, why did this happen? Did you, why do you think the temperature has risen in this portion of the greenhouse? And you allow that contribution from the experts out in the field. Um, that information is able to go into algorithms that then can determine this stuff automatically. And John, a tool, you know, I'm sure that what really makes this network of sensors when we talk about high density iot what really makes that work is capable artificial intelligence capable ai um you know because really this requires a neural network of sorts which is hundreds of sensors and uh it needs to be able to read the data it needs to be able to discern what to do with it and then make actionable decisions on it instead of creating more work for humans to sift through it needs to be able to present the solutions clearly so humans can make the actionable decisions not sift through the data. Um, so I think that's really dependent on being able to teach the AI to take each of these applications and um, really be a flexible neural network. So tell me a bit about what it takes for artificial intelligence to power these uh, th this array of high-density sensors. Um, what are some examples of how you've had to teach AI um, to really be the backbone of this IoTHD that's powering Industry 4.0. Great. So when we talk about neural networks, you know, when you step back and think about in general how do neural networks work, effectively there's the input layer, right? These are the inputs of what's happening. And then there's all these various layers, these hidden layers that are serving as the the sort of the hidden organization of what's happening, and then you finally get an output. So for instance, you know, in a case of, let's say a greenhouse, you might have lots of sensors and you know that I turned on the lights. Uh, you know, maybe I caused photosynthesis to occur. And there's all these hidden layers, things that you don't think about that are not ob observable by human eye. What are the plants doing? Are there any stresses? Are they letting out ethanol because they have spider mite infestation? Uh, is the water actually uh, a, a factor of the photosynthesis? And when you think about all those hidden layers and you're trying to come up with an output, a decision, a reason, when you add more sensors to enable those hidden layers, you're actually making the, the artificial intelligence, the neural network, be way more powerful, meaning the more hidden layers there are, 
the more robust the uh, the automation, the uh, intelligence, and so on. So that's how we see it. We see us actually push, putting out more sensors. And and to to be frank, like you know, as we deploy our networks, we have hundreds of sensors in these networks, and we could expand our networks in two kinds of ways. So let's take an example of a greenhouse where we have environmental sensors uh, deployed at scale. We're talking temperature, pressure, humidity, um, to really understand what's happening in the greenhouse. Now, what you're starting to see in the market is not just expanding how many environmental sensors there are. We're also seeing the expansion of what type of sensor. So now we're adding soil sensing, CO2 sensing, VOC, volatile compounds sensing, light sensing. And when you add all these sensors, you're effectively making this hidden layer or hidden layers very powerful for the artificial intelligence. Definitely, um, we are seeing a lot of... Um, um, improvement in terms of the sensor technologies you're getting much more precise um, in terms of the the, the measurements um, as a to already mentioned all kind of sensor um, to the very micro level of the environment and it's getting much compact in terms of size uh, so it's much uh, easier to deploy in the field in a very large scale and definitely it's associated with the cost it's also dramatically come down and plus the battery technology also improve right so that uh, those sensors you don't need to replace battery for many many years and with the technology in uh, improvement in the networking also so all all kind of this make this infrastructure so feasible so that the network can be much more complicated and but easy to deploy and very powerful so at the end of the day the, the result would be would be it's how to make it automated uh, decision making and this is definitely um, uh, what we call a disruptive um, technology. So we've laid out why high density IoT is so crucial to, you know, really focused and efficient Industry 4.0. Um, but I still think there's some opposition to this idea, or, or people just don't consider it an option, let alone. A reality that you know, a it's not possible to have hundreds of sensors acquire all this data accurately um, to be able to not create extra work for professionals in the field. Like, yes, data is great, but we need to cap how much we're actually consuming um, because it'll just become overload. How do you combat this? You know, why why do you think people aren't extremely receptive to high density IoT yet? Um, and how do you begin to change that narrative? Yeah, so we actually see that when we communicate with people and we showcase what is possible, they're very receptive, right? It doesn't. E it hasn't even crossed their mind. So in s some sense, our burden is being the first to educate around the possibility. Uh, however, so it's not it's not reframing misconceptions. It's just getting people to even think it's a possibility. Exactly, and. Then, of course, the questions arise, as you describe. what's the cost? How am I going to possibly implement all these sensors? Uh, what network are you using? And then, of course, there's some distractions around how does this integrate with my other sensors? Uh, and we argue it doesn't need to. You know, let there be an isolated network that's collecting data uh, to augment what you're already doing and use the Premio gateway as a means to communicate between two applications 
or two different sensor uh, uh, sensor networks. Now, um, one of the things that that we have found um, to be very helpful around our solution is we we had this sort of early advantage, but also this this sort of burden to really figure out how are we going to make this easy to deploy. So. Recently at the Apple event, uh, iOS, uh, uh, Apple announced that iOS now supports NFC writing and reading, right? So initially you could use your iPhone for reading, uh, you know, you could pay using your wallet so it could read your wallet from your phone, but now you could write into a uh, NFC endpoint. And for us, this is important because we've actually been using NFC for over three years now. So imagine you are deploying 500 sensors in your greenhouse and you're laying them all out on the floor and you're saying, great, we're going to put this out there. There's a couple of key challenges. One is how do I quickly provision these sensors to join my network? And so you could do it like Bluetooth or you could do it like Z-Wave and you could ask there to be a pairing mode or or what we do is you just take one of our industrial phones and you just tap each one and it activates that node into our network. Uh, we're using some other means where if you shake it a certain way, it activates it into the network and joins. However, we found NFC to be the most secure. We actually transfer an AES 256-bit encryption into the node into one of our sensor nodes through this NFC communication. And now that Apple has announced support for writing, we think NFC is actually going to be an easier means used across not just the business world, but even the consumer world in provisioning devices. A second, Interesting. yeah, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, that, that's going to start to happen very quickly. The second issue is how do I locate these nodes? When I deploy these in a massive greenhouse, let's say of 5,000 square feet, and I've got these 500 nodes, am I really going to draw it on a map? We've actually started to introduce different ways to automate location. So my co-founder actually is a former Broadcom principal scientist, worked at Garmin uh, prior to that. And a lot of his PhD thesis work was around indoor positioning at high density. So we've been able to use a lot of those academic learnings to make it easy to deploy these sensors. Because again, you don't have to if you had to manually dis, uh, determine where every sensor was and what data it's providing, that's a lot of work to deploy those that, that amount of sensors. But because we allow the system to determine this through all of the, the proprietary technology we built, you could deploy thousands of sensors and just go to a dashboard and see what data they're collecting and and focus more on the 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 training of the ai rather than the uh the managing of the network so i'd like to frame all of this thought leadership around some focused context uh applying this to one industry in particular um, let's look at agriculture per se um, you know coincidentally I had a, another conversation earlier today on the impact of imaging technology and visual AI uh, on horticulture and on greenhouses specifically. Um, so I've already been talking about this today, which is great. So I'm excited to dig in again um, because I think the agricultural industry, whether we're talking 
traditional crops. We're talking urban farming, um, or we're talking vertical farming, or we're talking greenhouses. Any aspect of agriculture is using a different kind of sensor technology, but they're all seeing a lot of benefits from Industry 4.0, and more specifically from just AI in general. Um, so I'd like to get some examples as to how you've seen high-density IoT improve some of the data that agricultural professionals are able to acquire and what kind of actionable decisions they're able to make with that high level of data. Let me try to paint uh, an actual picture for everyone. So in some of our deployments, we have, let's say, about 200 sensors in just a thousand square feet. And what we were able to, to help this greenhouse uh, identify was actually their HVAC systems had some faulty filters that was actually preventing the air being evenly distributed. So when you set a certain set point on your HVAC system, you're expecting in a 1,000 square feet, 2,000 square feet area of greenhouse, you're expecting uniformity. Right, you want every plant to uh, to have the same exact environment. But if your HVAC system is positioned in a certain place, and the the certain kind of uh, velocity of the air movement isn't there, you're going to have certain hotspots, whether it's temperature hotspots or humidity hotspots. And so, with our data, they were able to look at these 200 sensors, and again, not in line charts. They were actually able to look at this in a space spatial three-dimensional chart and say, wow, over here in the corner, we're actually seeing the temperature never drop to this level that this other area was. And we were able to identify that it was a filter. So we didn't necessarily answer the question, but we made the data accessible for them to determine. Now, if you think about machine teaching, imagine now we know what the data looks like when a certain problem exists so that the next time the data reflects the same exact problem we're going to be able to say hey a little warning you may want to check your filters so the ai could get more and more intelligent as you teach it what the outcome of the data was now that's one scenario another scenario i'll give a, a simpler example we saw in a, one of our greenhouse deployments there was a a certain a, a rise in temperature in a certain area of this room and it turned out that it was a breaker box that was actually letting off excess heat that was causing a small area. We're talking maybe you know uh, four four to five square feet of of uh, you know plantation of of greenhouse that was actually hotter than the rest of the area. Now, what that could do to a greenhouse is cause certain kind of uh, bacteria, uh, spider mites. It could sort of uh, promote. Uh, certain infestations. And so with our information, you have some cases where the scale of the data allowed smarter decisions because of our airflow analytics and so forth. And then you had other cases where if you have more sensors, you're just going to be able to identify more problems spatially because otherwise you wouldn't have had a sensor there to even note that there was a problem. So we have a lot of scenarios in agriculture where these sensors are being deployed. We have environmental sensors that's for humidity and temperature. We have soil substrate sensors 
that's the conductivity of the soil, the moisture of the soil. We also have light sensing. Uh, and then finally, we have air uh, quality. So air quality, CO2, and VOC. And when you put all this together, you really empower these greenhouses to understand almost at a plant level or a region within the greenhouse exactly what's happening with the plants and what you know you had mentioned about vision right vision infrared full spectrum vision cameras and uh you know artificial intelligence around image processing well we think that you're gonna want to augment your images with metadata right when we look as humans we look at a hot pot and then we could touch it and know that this is a hot pot so if this is a silver pot with some bubbles on a stove whether the stove is on or not may be hot so the next time i come across a pot that's sitting on a stove i'm going to be careful so if you actually have vision augmented with many different kinds of sensors you're going to be able to perform far greater computation and when you bring in the, the machinery, the, the capabilities that Premio does with the gateway, you know, whether it's a dual core Intel processor or it's a NVIDIA Jetson, you know, uh, processing with GPU support, you're able to do a perform a lot of these calculations at the edge without relying on the cloud. And so we're very excited about what the agriculture market has been able to do with us. We have over 20 deployments in agriculture and uh, over you know, thousands of sensors that are collecting this data and helping these growers make actionable decisions. And the end result will be less pesticides, uh, uh, more local foods, and it's going to be profitability for these low margin agriculture businesses. What kind of networks are needed to make that happen, though? Because the sensors and the data that motivate these kind of changes in the industry are great. But like we've been talking about, the, the infrastructure, um, the neural network or just the, the literal network for communicating uh, all of this data needs to be powerful enough to um, to read these hundreds of sensors. What What is needed to make that happen for the agricultural industry? Great. So what, what Adiza does is it actually provides a full end-to-end -end capability. So at the core of it, we are a wireless uh, radio. Uh, so we have created our own proprietary mechanism to be able to communicate uh, through with this many nodes. So we form a tree network instead of a mesh network. Traditionally, you know, in, in long range, you have a tower and you have lots of nodes. But in our system, these nodes are actually connected to each other, like inside of our bodies, right? Like sensors inside of our bodies. So they're actually communicating only to their neighbor and up the chain all the way to a premium gateway. And so what that allows us to do is scale horizontally. So we could geographically spread our sensors everywhere in the greenhouse. We can add a soil sensor here, a CO2 sensor here, a light sensor here, and they will simply communicate uh, automatically building a network uh, of, of each other and commuting to uh, uh, these nodes actually communicate to each other all the way up to the gateway. Now, 
you know, again, when you deploy high density, there's a lot of problems from the, the, the actual wireless network all the way to the amount of data the cloud would need to support. We've actually had to be, we were forced to build a lot of our own sort of platform capabilities, our cloud capabilities, and even our edge capabilities that exist inside the Premio boxes because the, the, the systems provided by Amazon, Google, Microsoft uh, with Azure have have some certain limitations. They they're not designed to scale at this level of nodes. So we we actually built our full end-to-end -end stack, making it very easy for our end customers to get up and running quickly and to be able to take advantage of the data uh, immediately. How accessible do you feel this technology is to the agricultural industry? Do you think there is still a ways to go before you see um, high density IOT impacting agriculture on every level, uh, or do you think it's starting to enter the public conversation faster than expected? So we, we think this technology is very accessible, uh, based on the patterns over the last even few months, we've seen increasing adoption, not just from the certain industries within agriculture, like cannabis, where you have a highly expensive plant that requires real microclimate analysis. But now you're seeing this actually being adopted by leafy vegetables, leafy greens, like lettuce, basil. Uh, and you're starting to see this be used in vertical farming. So we've been excited to be deployed in some of these these environments where local food production is very important, right? When you're talking about the East Coast, you're talking about urbanization, you don't want your food to come from across the country. And so not only is it becoming a very critical part of the dialogue from where agriculture is naturally going, but you're actually starting to see the operators want certain kinds of sensors. So uh, just the other day, I had a conversation where our temperature sensor, which currently has a um, sort of a precision of 0.1 degrees, uh, this, this grower actually said, hey, can we go down to 0 0.01? So you actually have growers who are now starting to engage in the conversation around what kind of data they would like from these sensors and then how they can use this data to make smarter decisions. And John, I'd like to bring your perspective into this side of the conversation too, because I know that Premio supports the back-end technologies that Adiza is creating um, and is pretty instrumental in bringing these solutions to life. So what is Premio's role in creating this sustainable network for high-density IoT and Industry 4.0? And why is it so important to be having these partnerships between companies um, to help deliver these solutions to Industry 4.0? Great, thank you. Um, I believe Atu has been uh, mentioning uh, well said about the application. How do they um, utilize uh, the Premium Gateway for the innovative uh, platform for um, this HD uh, network? Um, Premium has been in the last 30 years so focusing into the um, uh, embedded uh, industrial computing platform. So this particular gateway, it's only one of the example from our diverse uh, selections of fanless uh, and industrial grade uh, computing uh, hardware platform. So in this particular one, uh, this gateway, um, we are very glad to and excited to partnering with Adesa to enable um, this um, platform 
because it provided a very um um it it actually um it well fits into this uh, hash uh, environment uh, in this uh, agriculture as an example. Uh, to us, the agriculture might be covering not just from the farming, but it also can be for for, for maybe like livestock, fishing, or anything anything we relate to maybe with pets, with livestock and animals and um, uh, farming, not just uh, for, for growing vegetables or of, um, cannabis uh, as one of the uh, growing industry. Um, we believe the the partnerships uh, have made this product our platform more um, um, capable to driving the the IoT technology because um, without the software or applications, uh, we are only pro can providing up to the hardware level um, uh, platform. So with the partnership, we are um, capable to to seeing. Um, this can be helping the, the world population to to growing more, the the food more healthier, more faster uh, can can help the uh, the world population um, um, for the next uh, maybe 20, 30 years. So uh, one of part of our these designed uh, philosophy on our system it's uh, really targeting for mission critical. So to us, this uh, agriculture is definitely would be in a harsh environment. Um, this uh, with the climate change and with this uh, outdoor um, the greenhouse environment, there's a lot of humidity. Uh, the, the sunshine is direct sunshine on the on the field. So we believe the um, our industrial grade uh, computing platform would definitely be uh, one of the key elements um, as the infrastructure to driving the, the industrial IoT 4.0. There's two primary reasons why premium is very important to us and this vision of IoT high density. Number one is certainly what John had alluded to, which is the physical aspect of these devices. Uh, you know, we're in rugged environments where break, uh, you know, these machines are being sprayed down by water because they're cleaning a greenhouse. So we need IP rating, uh, IP 67, 65, et cetera. We also need the ability to support lots of connectivity, right? So we have ethernet support, Wi-Fi, and so forth. And we actually evolved from using more sort of maker space devices like the Intel Nook and the Upboard to finding Premio which serves as our industrial sort of quality industrial grade partner for the physical aspect. And then when we talk about what we do at the edge, we're doing a lot of data collection and processing at the edge. The edge is very important for the future of IoT and AI. And so having a Intel partner uh, be our partner, in this case, Premio, having the ability to rely on the the actual inside components of this device, the memory, the hard drive support, the solid state hard drive, and so forth, is very critical to us because we want these networks to run for years without having any physical maintenance. And Premio has proven to be a, a perfect partner for that. Yeah, I mean, the physical maintenance obviously cannot get in the way. Um, and as Industry 4.0 continues to become more efficient, well, clearly the hardware needs to be just as efficient, if not more. You know, it needs to it needs to be something that can be reliable for at least, I don't know, I'd say a decade, right, of use as the, the software and the data acquisition evolves and stays adaptable. Then we'd like the hardware to be reliable. 
Definitely. We take a very serious uh, designed uh, philosophy and concept into the uh, system level MTBF, right? In terms of this mission critical 24 by 7 operation, and with a lot of the, um, the, the wide range of the IO and connectivity, definitely we believe we can provide a very um, versatile and very uh, flexible uh, solutions, um, right, best fit to the uh, any almost any industrial applications. So in this particular case, the, the smart farming, smart agriculture, definitely is one of a very great example, well fit with our platform. Well, Atul, John, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, you know, I always love unpacking the future of Industry 4.0 because it really is affecting everyone, and it's affecting everyone differently. So it's always important to understand how the back end of Industry 4.0 is changing and how that's affecting some industries that are huge, some that are small. Um, you know, I, I think it just it transcends industry. It really is um, the future of manufacturing and the future of data acquisition are all really happening in Industry 4.0. So John Lamb, Atul Patel, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a pleasure getting to chat today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel, for having us. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous ones, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.